This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture. I am Chua Antik. Doping was a major blip of an otherwise uplifting Summer Olympics in Rio. Other than the discovery of the Russian state-sponsored doping scandal, athletes who tested positive in the past were booed by peers and the audience during their events. Sports lawyers Richard Wee and Brian Song are here to talk about how doping cases are investigated as well as what happens when athletes are caught cheating. Richard, Brian, welcome. Hi, hi, Ante. How are you? So I guess, Richard, this whole show started because um, we had a conversation a month or two ago and I remember you saying you wanted to cover doping because the Olympics was coming up. You said that the whole of doping is law. What did you mean by that? Well, people always see doping as uh, a cheat for sports. And actually, in the true core of the, the concept of sports doping lies sports law. And this is the law which governs uh, the operation of Testing an athlete, uh, the veracity of the tests, the accuracy of the tests, and of course the results from the tests. And then after the results uh, is discovered positive or negative, uh, especially if it's positive, then what happens after that? There'll be the usual adjudication, uh, um, hearings, um, finding of guilt, and then eventually punishment. So that effectively, if you hear that, is no different from a, a person getting caught ha- having drugs in the, in, the, in the street, except this involves in sports. But what is peculiar, um, as I perhaps have mentioned with you outside this show, is it's very funny where, when people hear about sports doping, um, people hear someone involved in sports and uh, they, they, the person is punished and then when they take part uh, later, uh, people just say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, he was formerly caught for drugs and he can take part. But if you use the same chemical... Uh, product and go to a club and shake your head and call it ecstasy, you go to prison and people say, oh, that's wrong, you know, you shouldn't do that. So it's also very funny how uh, people by nature perceive sports doping and uh, drugs with chemical usage. It's, it's very funny. Who defines what is banned and what is not banned? Who sets the rules? Uh, well, in the world of uh, anti-doping, uh, uh, the main agency is the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. They are a very effective and um, the organization constantly update the list of uh, uh, anti-performance uh, enhancing um, drugs, so per se. And uh, this may include, of course, the uh, things like cocaine and heroin, so of course, also in the list. But uh, in the list of uh, uh, things which athletes should not consume will include things like certain medication, certain uh, chemicals, etc. So WADA is the one who has the list and they update it every year. So I can understand why performance enhancing drugs would not be allowed. But party drugs, why is it the business of WADA? Yeah, um, of course, if the drugs is uh, not performance enhancing, usually the WADA is, is not involved. But there is some, some sense of... Uh, uh, morality that you know if your pl- player is in cocaine then you will be suspended one classic example was Adrian Muto uh, the player from Chelsea about 12 years or 14 years ago and he was tested uh, positive for if I'm not mistaken uh, cocaine and eventually uh, he was suspended and in fact his contract was terminated you know so while he wasn't technically performance enhancing but he was also uh, Illegal to take the drugs, and I think uh, it's, it's a it's a correct thing to do. 
Brian, how are athletes monitored or investigated? Generally, when you look at the code itself, uh, one of the requirements of the code uh, requires the athletes to report uh, on their whereabouts and to also go through uh, tests within a fixed period, 12 months, uh, which require them to go through three tests. If they fail to turn up for any of those tests, then uh, that is a violation under the code itself. Then you will be subject to suspension depending on the severity of it. What happens when an athlete is found positive? When an athlete is found positive, then um, we would have to ascertain uh, what is the banned substance uh, that, it, that contained in the sample itself. Generally, you have sample A and sample B. Uh, that's the urine sample. That, so you have to give two um, cups? Uh, yes, correct. Tested separately? Tested separately at separate occasions. What happens is that you will always test on the sample A. So if you are tested positive for sample A, you will be notified that you have a chance to have sample B tested. So if sample B is tested positive as well, then we have to go into uh, defending the athlete's position as to what has happened, what is the substance that actually gone into the body on the blood or urine itself, that's what I meant, mm -hmm. and work from there how we need to defend the case. Um, is the list of banned substance very long? Can an athlete be reasonably expected to know everything that is on that list? I don't believe the athlete is expected to know uh, what is on that list in its entirety. But as a prudent athlete, you need to be well aware of what you consume. Um, what I mean is that you don't look at the bigger picture, as in look through the whole list to see what is actually banned. You looked at what you have before you, whether it contains those banned substances. So what you need to do is you talk to your doctors, you talk to your nutritionist, these are the two key people, and also maybe your family members that prepare the food. Um, so coming back to what you were saying, um, if they are found positive, if both sample A and sample B is found positive, what are some of the grounds for appeal? How, what, what kinds of defence can an athlete come up with? Um, there are basically two broad categories of defence. Um, it's either there is no fault or negligence at all. This is a very high standard for you to actually prove that there's no fault or negligence on your part. All right? And for this category, by way of example, if let's say one of your defence is that um, my wife has prepared food for me, I don't know about it. My coach has given me medications. Uh, I don't know what is inside. Uh, I have been consuming certain supplements without going through what is on the label. This is actually not part of the defense for no for or negligence. That's the the unintentional or unknowingly consuming. No, that that's, that is a separate category where we talk about uh, no significant fault of negligence. When you look at the code itself, uh, intention is not an important factor for to determine whether there's a violation. Right. Intention 
it's only important for you to ascertain the punishment. Defense, the right. punishment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Richard, mm, yes. what is the definition for performance enhancing? Definition. Yeah. And well, when did it become illegal? Because all vitamins are performance enhancing, right? Yeah. Um, generally, actually, there is a technical uh, definition to this, but let, let me just explain things to make it easier. Uh, basically, if anybody consume anything, you know, it could be even the normal plain water, but that plain water or that bread that you eat um, gives you an, an added energy which normally will not be given to you. Um, and that will mean that when you step onto the track, for example, to run, you end up running faster than other people. Not because you uh, took supplements which is accepted, but you took something which had um, altered the way your body react to that that the thing that you eat. So classic one, uh, I mean, uh, let me use examples which people uh, know. Uh, ben Johnson in 1988, he took what now known, world-known famous steroids. Everyone, the whole world know about steroids because of that case. So what happens with steroids is that, actually steroids is a normal medication. People take steroids all the time. You go to hospital, if you're not well, you have a certain pain, doctor may prescribe uh, steroids to you. But, when consumed by by an athlete with an intention to run, in, in Ben's case, steroids give him an unexpected burst of power at the point of um, the, 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 the to start off the run. And that's why if you recall in 1988 when uh, the, the gun went off, um, the first 10 meters he was already ahead by one meter because of that special burst of power artificially created by the usage of steroid, which gave his muscles calf an extra added jump. Uh, so that's what uh, WADA does. They have a, a group of scientists who works with a group of uh, lawyers. Uh, they, they will study certain uh, chemicals, certain medicines, certain food, whether it actually gives you this kind of uh, artificial and uh, not meant to be given to kind of, basically making yourself a superman. But you shouldn't be a superman. So, um, but of course, you know, people take vitamin C, you know, people take whatever vitamins. Uh, so, WADA does go through a list, the list and says, look, you know, there's certain things which you can take. We understand. You want to stay healthy, uh, essence of chicken, you know, go ahead. But um, if it's if you consume something to, I repeat, to artificially give your body artificial power, uh, then WADA may step in and say, that you can't take. I'm speaking today to Richard Wee and Brian Song. Both are sports lawyers and we're talking about doping in sports. Um, up next, I'd like to ask them more about how punishment are dished to athletes who have been found guilty of doping. BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture. I'm Chua Antik. Today, the topic we're talking about is doping in sports. Um, doping was very pertinent because... The Olympics just concluded. I remember watching a few events where athletes were very vocal about their fellow competitors who have been found guilty in the past. Mm. And I just want to play a few clips of swimmers who spoke out during those days of competition and and I'll get your thoughts on it. Uh, yeah, definitely a win for a good guy. I don't know if it's a rivalry between me and him, just me and athletes who have tested positive, I guess. 
that was the Australian 400 meter swimmer Mac Horton talking about his competitor Sun Yang, the Chinese swimmer, who um, was convicted of doping. The next clip I wanted to play is one of Lily King, the American 100 meter breaststroke swimmer, who was commenting about her Russian rival Yulia Efimova, who up to I think a week before the Olympics were unsure of her participation at the Olympics. He's shaking your finger number one and. And uh, you've been caught for drug cheating. I'm just not, you know, not a fan. So, um, <laughs> interesting. A lot of things here that I want to talk about. One is, I guess, punishment, right? Athletes who have been found guilty, some are punished more severely than, than others. Um, I can remember Lance Armstrong, for example. He was banned for life when he was uh, found guilty for doping. And um, another example, Justin Gatlin, the American sprinter, 100-meter sprinter, who competed with Bolt during the Rio finals for 100-meter, was allowed to compete in Rio despite being found guilty of doping twice in the past. Brian, how are sentences dished out and who are the, one, who, who are the adjudicators? Okay, when we looked at the code itself... I mean, if there is someone that has violated the doping code, we are looking at a four years suspension. And you mitigate or you defend your case from that four years period and see how much more you can get it reduced. So one substance, four years. Yes, okay. that's, that's how we start that off, right? And as to when the ineligibility period starts or suspension starts, that you can get it backdated as far as the date your sample is taken. But generally, it could also start from the date of the decision itself. So if you're asking why some of them are punished more severely than others, I could only say that uh, each case has different set of facts. Each case has different sets of mitigation factors and defense. So once a person is uh, caught positive, the relevant association that comes in will be the federation that actually governs that sports. Let's say if we talk about badminton, that would go under BWF. If we talk about uh, athletics, it will go under IAAF. So these federations will hear the case and decide what kind of penalty or suspension period that they will meet out. And then from there, you take the decision to cast if you're not happy with that particular decision. You can always appeal. So you don't directly go under the purview of cast. In the Olympics instance... um Correct me if I'm wrong. It was the uh, IOC, the International Olympics Council, who decided who gets to participate and who gets... uh, They are the one who decide whether or not to take on the recommendations from these associations? Uh, Yes, they do. So, in essence, the the IAF, for example, or the BWF, they have the power to recommend whether or not someone can participate, but it is the um, organisers of competitions, the World Championships or Olympics, who, who decide whether or not an athlete get to compete. Once an athlete qualified on a standard given set by the Olympic Council, then he or she should be allowed to play. Of course, as your question, we should ask to Brian, if uh, a person attains a standard from that sports, then that association will submit that name to IOC. 
I've not heard of IOC saying no. Mm. I mean, at this stage, IOC would have to say yes, unless there's something wrong with the player. Yeah. Suspended. Unless there's a suspension period, they're still effective. Uh. So, coming back to your question on why a person that has breached or violated the doping rule is allowed to come back for the second time and compete, that's because they have actually served the suspension period mm-hmm. and it's over. Right. Okay. Um... So that's the, the legal side. But um, from what I've read, um, someone who is displaying behavior that suggests doping can be deliberately selected for tests. Someone who has maybe improved by leaps and bounds over a short period of time. Is this not unfair? Well, um, if you look at through the WADA um, their guidelines, actually athletes are not targeted. Uh, they are very randomly selected. Uh, in fact, even the process of randomly selecting the athlete is uh, legally controlled. Uh, there is a particular way to choose. So, for example, if um, the the WADA steps into uh, um, Finch Farm, Everton's uh, training ground, and they want to test uh, an Everton player, they would have uh, just in, abruptly informed Everton, go in uh, and randomly choose a player based on a particular process. So they will not go and target a player. An example that's, So that's during competition in the Premier League So in IOC, uh, once you finish your your race uh, From what I understand, all the athletes are required to immediately give your, your uh, urine test But sometimes, even within that contest, you may be called upon Because of the way it's selected And it's, it's there, it's all in the court uh, it's, it's, So that I would not say that if an athlete suddenly shows superpower strength uh, that the uh, WADA will immediately purposely target that chap. I, I don't think so. Um, but uh, the, if the random test process points towards the athlete, then yeah, they'll test the person. Do top athletes, for example, get tested more often than, than the rest? Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. Yes, they they do. do. Makes sense, isn't it? Yeah, because they, they, they are, they are right on top and the higher you go, the WADA will test you more. Other than the, I think Brian, you mentioned that there's regularly scheduled tests. Are there any complaints about the the processes or the, the system that WADA has? Because there's a lot of athletes in a lot of sports. Is WADA sufficiently? Do they have enough resources to go and test every athlete's sample? I mean, each uh, each country or that they go, they have a accredited um, laboratory to conduct all these tests with the relevant officials appointed to see the athletes take the sample and get it tested. So I would believe that they have sufficient resources to get this done to implement the provisions of the code to ensure fair play in sports. Richard, one of the talking points of this Olympics was the Russian state sponsored. Uh, the one with the clips that you were playing earlier. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, wh- wh- How did this happen? <laughs> that is a mystery for, for all of us in, in the world of sports. But uh, the moment it was discovered, I think WADA took immediate steps to uh, one, you know, check on it, two, form the necessary uh, commission to investigate it, and we, we saw the report, and uh, eventually proposed punishments were. were were uh, granted out. Uh, of course, as we know, uh, at the end, I think uh, the IOC left it to the relevant uh, sports association to decide with regards to the with regards to the Russian athletes. And uh, the Paralympic, as you know, made a total ban on all Russian Olympics or Olympians. Uh, so it's up to the association to decide, uh, and that's what they did. Uh, to be fair, the 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 Russian 
doping. We we don't really know exactly what happened, like Brian. I mean, it's it's still up in there. We only read what we have, and and it was quite sudden uh, the discovery of this uh, Russian uh, so-called uh, drug uh, process, you know, by for the for the players. But um, what is important is uh, for us to take home from this is this two things: the public outcry that we want everyone to be uh, playing the game fairly, uh, so play by the rules. And uh, you can see that the, the public, I, I, I don't think they were purposely selecting Russia. It could have been any country. It just happened to be Russia that uh, people want any athlete to appear in the Olympics to be clean. And also, and the moment uh, there's a perception that you may not be clean, then every time you win something at the Olympics, it's tainted, it's potentially tainted. Uh, and that's, that does affect the sanctity of the event itself, you know. So that's what happened with the Russian uh, thing. I, I think um, basically uh, the WADA stepped in and tried to remedy it. And unfortunately, sports bureaucracy took over and, and we saw what happened in the end in, in Russia. Un- under what circumstances would a medal or a title be rescinded once you are found guilty of doping? Well, the Ben Johnson one was a classic example. He 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 won the gold medal in 1988 with a world record, by the way, 100 meters at that time. And the moment he was found guilty, uh, not only the medal was taken away, the record was deleted. Um, you but you have to prove that uh, that the substance was taken at the time of competition. Yes, yes. So if he has won, like for example, the Olympic title four years prior, he can still keep that. Uh, not really. Uh, look at Lance Armstrong. Um, uh, if uh, evidence can lead towards usage of uh, performance enhancing drugs at the time of your victory even 10 years ago um, it's possible to, to take punishment you must remember and take at the end of the day the big picture is this the big picture of this whole entire topic of sports doping is to try and give that young boy or young girl who's now training who's now training who's going to try and win an Olympic in say archery or whatever that he or she in five to six years time when he or she take part he or she will fight and compete with somebody else on equal uh, measure not because the other fellow next to me is on steroids so a WADA through its effort is trying to ensure that the entire sports is clean it's not a perfect process uh, I think I personally have my own comments against uh, the process but I think that the whole idea is to try and give every potential young athlete the hope that they are taking part in a real competition yeah, yeah Brian um, just just to add a little bit on what Richard has said on your question as well um, if somebody has won a medal four years ago and what happens now and all that and then the code itself um, before First January two zero one five. Wada can go as far as eight years yeah. to retest that sample. Yeah. Now that provision has been changed to ten years. Yeah, exactly. Why uh, that change is because technology has advanced. So you can actually use a more advanced technology to actually test a sample that was taken many many years ago. And wow. they can they can now discover. So like uh, I think. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, Lance Armstrong, not only was he guilty of using uh, so-called drugs, but he had used some kind of drugs to camouflage drugs. That, so, yeah. That's actually a masking agent. So, mm. masking agent is 
one of the prohibited substance or methods. Right. You know, so you actually dope yourself and then you <laughs> use something to mask whatever yeah. that you have done to yourself that so is not allowed. During testing, they, they cannot find out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they, they keep your sample for now up to 10 years. That's yeah. right. So on that spirit, like what Brian say, 10 years ago, they couldn't find it, that masking agent. Now they can. So they test you again. I guess we've been building up to this. The, the, the highest court, the Supreme Court for to decide all of these things is the Court of Arbitration for Sports. And um, it was created in 1984. Who, who sits on, on this court? Well, for CAS, um, the headquarters is in Lausanne in, in, um, in Switzerland. Uh, I think the gentleman who's uh, the director there is Mr. Matthew Reap. Um, it's managed like a, a, an arbitration centre. Uh, for the arbitrators, uh, there's a list of arbitrators uh, who has been selected over the years. And every time there is a relevant hearing, a, the relevant arbitrator will be appointed uh, by a particular selection process. CAS, while physically located in Switzerland, but they have uh, hearing centres all over the world. In fact, uh, the good news is that Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, is one of the selected uh, centers in the world and all all CAS cases may be heard in Kuala Lumpur Regional Center of Arbitration, KLRCA. So we are quite honored to have that. It goes to show the, the standard and status of our our center of arbitration. So to answer your question, who sits in the in the in the arbitration body? Arbitrators who are listed in the in the CAS list. It can be lawyers it can be um, retired athletes, it can be retired sports administrators who qualify to hear such a case. There is their test to go through uh, to become a sports arbitrator. Um, there has been a case which uh, is challenging the supremacy of the, the authority of this oh. court. And this is the case of uh, Claudia, Claudia uh, Pechstein. Yep. Uh, she's a German speed skater, um, the most decorated winter Olympian um, in Germany. And... She was found um, guilty of doping in 2009 and she's adamant in that she, she was innocent and uh, she attributes it to a genetic defect that, that causes her blood to, to uh, display that uh, positive result. Yeah. Um, so can, can you tell us about th that case? Well, that, that case is uh, a ping pong in court. Uh, <laughs> it's been a seven-year battle. Yeah, so you know, it was heard in case and she was found... Uh, guilty of, of doping and then she challenged a CAS hearing in, in Germany um, I don't really want to bore the listeners with the details but basically she challenged it in the German court and she won at the, at the first instance in the high court then that hearing uh, it was appealed uh, the court of arbitration appealed against that decision it went upstairs so per se in the higher courts in Germany and CAS won uh, the, the, the the decision of CAS was upheld. Now, Claudia is uh, launching another action to say that, um, if I can just go off tangent for a short while, all athletes, when they take part in competitions like FIFA World Cup or uh, Olympics or Commonwealth Games, they have to sign a certain agreement. Uh, one of the one of the clause in the agreement is uh, that they will ac accept the jurisdiction of CAS. Uh, and now uh, Claudia is challenging that that uh, process of uh, execution of the agreement, saying that when she signed the agreement, she was not properly advised, 
and therefore she was effectively effectively forced to re, to sign that, that agreement. So that is developing, and we we, were, we haven't seen the end of that case yet. So uh, maybe in a few months' time, I'll tell you. But it's very interesting. It goes to show the process of not just uh, sports adjudication, but the due process. That not only you have a way to uh, hear a case, you will also not have a way to challenge the way you hear the case. You know, so uh, this is good. This is good for development of sports law. Yeah, yeah, because it's about uh, if I'm understanding correctly, whether or not local laws can can be appealed to against the the caste law. Yeah, that, that's always been a, a, an ongoing battle. Whether, for example, let's say you use Malaysia. So if a Malaysian athlete is not happy with a decision of their their association, so let's say a, a club Persatuan Sukan ABC find an athlete uh, guilty. Uh, through their internal hearings and and then the athlete take the matter to CAS, again, find guilty. Can he or she take it to the high court? Uh, that matter is a grey area. But many, many Malaysian cases, for example, have uh, made a decision that uh, always exhaust all remedies in the, in the uh, sports association before you come to court. And even when you come to court, you, you, you don't appeal. You apply for judicial review to decide whether or not the hearing process uh, was fair, justiciable. Yeah, the lawyers will know about this. But for, for the listeners who are not lawyers, basically, uh, you only go to high court after you complete all and exhaust all your hearings in the association. So in the end, um, what did we learn from this Olympic Olympics in light of what we see from, from Russia? Um, what is the message in in the fight against doping. Where are we going next? Well, um, I'll, I'll do this first before. I, I think Brian uh, will be able to answer this too. Well, if you look at the clips that you just played or if you listen to the clips that you just played, um, sometimes doping is not worn by uh, the battle of courtrooms. Uh, the best best victory sometimes uh, by way of public perception. And this uh, outbursts by athletes who were clearly unhappy to compete with athletes they perceived to be um, not clean is a good way to remind other athletes, be careful. And, you know, the moment people perceive you to be not clean, uh, sponsors will not come to you, potential investors won't invest in that game, um, you, you, you lose out in the long term. Look at uh, Mr. Armstrong, top of the world 15 years ago, now totally down. Um, and nobody will ever listen to him ever again. So um, I think what I will take away from the Olympics, specifically about doping, is that it is the uh, remarkable, the spirit of the people who watched it, followed it, took part in it, that they, in the end, celebrated uh, fair play by asking everyone to be clean. You know, and that that's good. That's a good message, and hopefully the young future athletes, uh, the next uh, Usain Bolt, will think twice before they consume drugs in sports. Right. Right. I mean, generally when we talk about Olympics, uh, I would say Olympics is the ultimate game. Everyone watches it. Gold medals, any medals that you get, itself is an honor or something that the athlete would treasure. So everyone goes all out to win. But to win that medal, there must be some form of regulations to regulate them through fair plays and all that. So which is why you have the anti-doping code that comes into picture. 
how do we then fight against doping? It's actually an ongoing battle. You you have a much more advanced technology. You would definitely have a much more advanced method of doping yourself if your ultimate intention is to cheat and win. So if you look at the doping code itself, it's constantly changing. You know, in two thousand nine, two thousand thirteen, two thousand fifteen. Various amendments have been made, especially with 2015, the substantial changes that have been made. And the list of prohibited substances change every year, and it's a longer list each and every year. So it's basically doing more to counter what that may come in the future through all these things. It's like technology, you're always playing catch-up, regulations always catching yes, up correct. to you have new to catch up. You definitely have to catch up with the game because everyone gets very uh, innovative. Yeah, it's good. I, I think uh, most athletes may not like WADA, but I think WADA is good for us. But I just hope that uh, people in WADA uh, who may be listening to this, you know, they they cannot be overzealous also. La. There's also the element of uh, give and take, you know, but um, however, the moment an athlete is suspected to be on, on drugs, then actually all of us as fans of sports must support WADA to make sure that that person is caught. Yeah, every one athlete caught for drugs, it stops 10 other athletes from taking drugs. And that's, that's a good way to, to look at it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Antik. Thanks. I've been speaking to Richard Wee and Brian Song, both are sports lawyers, about doping in sports. You've been listening to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.